Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app hey guys thanks for all the feedback and the help uh, after the nina rubin episode i didn't get a chance to record intros and outros last week i swept up with uh south by southwest and and I, I wanted to, I'm spacing out the part two a little bit. I, I don't want to make this podcast all about me. Um, and and it makes me uh, a little uncomfortable to just be talking about myself the whole time. But um, I got so much feedback from you guys. I got so many emails. I had so many people. And by the way, I haven't returned the emails to a good portion of you because of how swamped I am. But I'm really, really getting on top of... Uh, of stuff things have really progressed um organizationally and and um and in terms of productivity over the last couple weeks and and you'll hear part two of of nina's episode really soon we have a episode like today adam bradley has a book coming out um so i just wanted to get this episode out right away and uh always fun to mix it up a little bit um as well but uh, a couple things I want to say is uh, I've had artists and and animators and a number of uh, different people um, emailing and helping, and I will get back to each and every one of you if you haven't heard of me yet, heard from me yet, um, and it's already been incredibly helpful. I have a couple of things. Um, one very specific thing: if you live in San Francisco and you're a painter, um, like an artistic. Uh, painter i'm i'm looking to have a backdrop uh painted for um for as part of the documentary for shooting in oakland um and so uh looking looking for some potential help for that and then i have something every one of you can help me out with and i absolutely this is just a really good example of how exceptionally busy i am we went through all of all of my to-do lists. Um, that actually wasn't hardly even scratching the surface. It feels like, uh, but we we did actually get through a good bulk of my to-do lists on the 
Nina Rubin episode one. Huge, huge thing that I can't believe um, I didn't mention during that uh, was the Laughable app that I have partnered with um, is launching in um it's delayed about a week but by the time you're hearing this um it should be uh, a a lot of the press stuff should be coming out for that um so uh, laughable if you haven't heard me talking about before it's an app that basically um I've, i've partnered with because it's helping me create new listeners and more importantly find you guys and target you guys a little more specifically so when i'm in your area um you can um i can target you and you'll know that i have a, a live here we are podcast or good trip show or whatever it might be and um and it's a way of, of for you to get more content so you're like i want to i want to hear um shane as a guest on shows like the bone zone podcast is just this ridiculous uh ridiculous podcast with uh brennan walsh and randy litke which is just uh, like one of the most immature things you'll ever hear in in a wonderful way by the way um and then and then you might hear me on that and then you might go i want to hear more of this randy litke fella and then you can go to his profile on the app and it will show you every podcast that he has hosted and been a guest on and so you can get specifically this is the direction everything's going is is that it's figuring out ways to target you guys to figure out specifically what you want and then this this um app is also going to me as someone producing a podcast is going to show me um exactly what you guys are listening to and uh and and when in terms of each here we are podcast episode so we can start making a few changes here and there um, I'm, I'm going to be announcing a few more changes with the here we are podcast. Um, I've, I've started kind of constructing a team, um, of people that are going to be helping me out and making a number of improvements on many, many, um, aspects of, of, um, my career and in, including, um, the here we are podcast, which this, uh, this podcast is probably my favorite thing in the world to do um and and i'm uh, exceptionally passionate about it and just want it to grow and i know you guys want it to grow as well and so one of the big things you can do is if you have an iphone you can download the laughable app and you can um go to laughable dot com and you can if if you have an android like i do you can sign up and they will let you know when it's available for android and just having a a few uh, some higher numbers and having you guys once you start using it you're going to love it i've heard nothing but positive feedback which is such a relief for me because um i took a chance on partnering with this company and they took a chance on me by the way i'm i'm like the lowest name on their roster of like burt kreischer and ari shafir and all these uh amazing um guys with podcasts that have been podcasting for longer than me and have been comics for longer than me and have a much bigger following and um and ned the creator of the laughable app was has just been uh a fan of here we are from the start i just talked to him today and i was like oh you should talk to my friend peter mcgraw who studies uh humor and maybe he can help you with some of your analytics stuff and he's like oh i know peter from your podcast 
I even own his book. That's what a big fan he is of this podcast. And so, so this is, um, uh, we have a, someone who is dedicated to promoting, uh, here we are and getting into more places. And so in return, if you guys could go and, and please check out the app and rate it, you know, do all, do all the usual stuff that helps out every company. We give it a five-star rating, all that. That will be a tremendous help. That's something all of you can do uh, right now, and it will benefit. If you don't like the app, give it a try. If you don't, download it. Try it out for a week or two. If you don't like it, um, one, first email me and let me know what you didn't like about it because I I can directly get that information, and I can probably even forward your email to the creator of the app. Uh, so if there's something that you didn't like, and we are really looking for any kind of improvements, this is this is new. Um, we're all there's a bunch of us comics brainstorming on how to make this uh, better. And so if you have any ideas, let us know. And after all of that, if you're still not satisfied with it, then just delete the app from your phone. Who cares? Um, but you are going to like it, and you're not going to delete it. I'm not worried about that. In the slightest, but um, yeah. So anyway, it's it's this is like a low. <laughs> uh, th- this is not much of a gamble um, for you guys. Uh, other than that, I'm going to have some stuff on the back end. I'll give you a, l- a few more details about some of some of the um, new and exciting projects that I have going on. But I will uh, I'll, I'll keep the outro um, nice and short. Uh, again painter in san francisco send me an email go to the here we are podcast.com website and uh, click on ask a scientist um i'm going to have some other specific projects like this too that um maybe maybe you guys can help me out with if if you're if you think it would be fun um no big deal um just if you if you want to be involved a little bit and then also the laughable app would be um tremendous boost for me if if you can start getting on there because then i think you'll tell your friends about it and um it's just a, a great source of comedy content all right enjoy today's episode this one is a great one are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have a repeat guest, so you already know it's going to be a good one. Otherwise, why would I have them back? That would be silly. Uh, we have um, this is actually one of the, one of uh, audience's favorite episodes from 2016. I think it was the first one of the year, and something that I heard all throughout the year um, from from you guys mentioning how much you enjoyed it. Um, sending me music suggestions ever since and wondering when I was going to get this guest back. So I have uh, joining me once again, director of the Lab for Race and Pop Culture, otherwise known as the Rap Lab. That's right. Um, here at uh, the University UC Boulder is Adam Bradley, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Man, that's a hell of an intro, Shane. Thanks. <laughs> I um I'm I'm here to I'm here because of you. We're doing a we're doing a show tonight. Um, That's right. That that uh that you you put together. We're going to be talking about humor 
and ra- with uh, uh and rap with with uh, our friend our mutual yeah. friend Peter McGraw and uh a free show that I'm advertising for if you guys can find a time machine and go back in time and go to Boulder <laughs> there's a free show uh happening tonight um and uh and adam i i don't understand how you you get lots of work i just so the a couple of last episodes um i actually uh hired a life coach (laughs) 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 i I never thought i'd have a life coach i've been overwhelmed with stuff uh this year because i've been busy well you gotta have a life to have a life coach right i think that's i know i don't have a life right now my life coach is teaching me to like have more of a life um (laughs) and uh and I, I've been, I've been overwhelmed with uh, with things to do. And then I look at you, just cranking out books left and right, and putting together shows and doing all the heavy lifting and <laughs> and having to keep track of uh, irresponsible comedians, mm. and uh, <laughs> which is quite a chore. Well, I have kids, so I'm used to you know chasing around. Yeah, and you rascals. have kids. How do you? How do you? Uh, well, I mean, one. You you must love what you do. That's the only way anyone can can uh, can work that hard. Um, studying music. I I want to get into your new book first of all. The last time we talked, we basically I just got to share all of the all of the rap that I'm into mm-hmm. and my history of of uh, of of, of hip hop. Uh, I've been obsessed with uh, Aesop's new album yeah, lately. Yeah. I just wanted to do a little update for the audience. Um, and you were telling me. On the way, uh, your way into uh, Chance the Rapper. Chance the Rapper, a yeah. must. I mean, for you of all people, so yeah, you should be I'm your guy. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar. Yeah. You it, know? Why do you say that? You have so much in common. Why do you say that? Just start with the hallucinogens. I mean, oh, this, okay. this is this guy's uh, most famous mixtape entitled Acid Rap. You know, that's got to be somewhere in the ballpark, at least. Sure, yeah. It's totally unfamiliar. You know, he, he digs shrooms and... All sorts of other things, but he's also just uh, one of the most innovative stylists that we're hearing. Young artist who brings a sense of almost like a gospel sensibility, a sense of the melodic into his flow, and it, it, to me, it's just uh, so staggering. And to have a social consciousness as well. He just donated a uh, million dollars to the Chicago public schools in the in the face of the crumbling infrastructure that we're seeing there, and. and you know, he 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 lives his art, and his art reflects his life and his engagements. And you know, sometimes that can get really tedious, but he does it in a way that he wears that lightly. Mm-hmm. It's still raucous and and inventive and and funny without trying to be funny. I mean, and, and to me, that's about the the perfect artist for this moment. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to get into chance. I I tried it last time. Which, by the way, listeners, if you haven't heard uh, our last conversation, you really should because we're not going to be talking much about rap today. No. Um, but uh, but I I did on your advice. Tried to get into Kendrick Lamar. Mm. Some songs I like. I was like, oh, I get it, and I like really, especially his newest stuff. Um, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. Uh, and, but I, I, uh, I think I need to listen to more to totally, uh, some of it was a little too, um, gangster seeming for me. Mm. And I, I feel like, I feel like maybe he was doing characters a little more, but I mean, yeah, I don't know. People don't give rappers enough credit for the capacity to invent characters. I mean, this is not a new insight for me. This is something that 
Jay-Z said almost a decade ago in, in testifying before Congress when they were looking into explicit content in, in song lyrics. And he said that you know, we have film directors like Martin Scorsese who can paint these pictures of gangster life, mm-hmm. but let a rapper do it using the first person, the I, and all of a sudden we assume that they're hustling too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, that's Rich coming from Jay-Z, who, who was a hustler. <laughs> right. And, and uh, embodies some of that lifestyle. But nonetheless, there's something to that. And I think a lot of artists that we're seeing emerging today embody personas. Future, for instance, another rapper who raps a lot about substances, has said that, you know, obviously I don't do all the drugs that I, that I say I'm doing in my songs or else I wouldn't be as productive as I am. I mean, he just released three albums last week, <laughs> you know, so, really? so clearly he's doing something other than just, uh, you know, promethazine, you know, there's some other things involved in, in, in terms of the craft of the art. And he's projecting a persona that appeals to a lot of listeners at, at this moment. So persona, and th- this is true across the pop music landscape. This is something I develop in my book is thinking about persona not just in hip hop, but across the board. I mean, Marilyn Manson, that was a persona that yeah. he discovered early on and made work and, and has come to maybe have his own life reflect the persona uh, by virtue of the strength of it. But it was a, is a conscious like construction. Like Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> um, yeah, how, how, how would that be as a comic to be stuck in a fucking character. Yeah, a character yeah. you do is in like a fun a little radio call and yeah. thing once in a while. I'm like, this funny character. And then it takes off and now it's like, oh, now I am this guy. <laughs> I just am this thing I was making fun of. So the reason why I, I wanted to bring up my – because this is I – haven't, I haven't listened to much Kendrick Lamar. Mm. And so this is – I'm sharing with you like my base level judgment so that you could kind of correct me because I think it leads into – my feelings toward so i look at this this book I, I, so here i you know i get to uh hang out with and i get to interview this um awesome professor who studies hip hop and everything and then here you go and you sell out on me <laughs> and you you write a book called the poetry of pop so now mm. in my now when i first hear that when i think about pop music i'm thinking of like um i'm thinking of like Backstreet Boys and uh, and Britney Spears mm-hmm. and I'm I'm also dating myself a little a little mm. a little bit right now. I guess One Direction would be a more up to date yeah. uh, reference. This is the kind of thing that when I when I see the word pop, that's what pops into my mind. But this isn't what <laughs> see the, what you did there. This yeah. isn't what the uh, this yeah. isn't what the book is about. Um, no, no, no. Uh, this, well, this not is, just that, or, or or right, not yeah. just that. That that's certainly not how you would define pop. Well, I, I uh, reserve a certain um, respect for people who have been working with popular music a lot longer than I. And one of those is the novelist and essayist Nick Hornby. And he has this wonderful description, maybe like a reinscription of pop music. And he says, pop music is anything but classical. Mm-hmm. So you can include in that country, thrash metal, gangster rap, whatever that is these days, you can include what I do in this book, which is a like convening a strange sonic dinner party where you know, Britney Spears is next to Richard Hell, who's next to Jay-Z, who's next to Joni Mitchell, who's next to Marilyn Manson, 
all around the table. You're bringing all these voices together and looking for points of continuity and difference, listening for common elements like rhythm, rhyme, figurative language, story, voice, all of these things that animate all the music that we listen to in the popular vein. That's pop music to me, and I'm going to you know, die by that definition. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I mean, I'm much happier to know that the book <laughs> is about that definition of pop music yeah. than about uh, just like Teeny Bopper, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which I, I think that uh, um, that maybe you'll, maybe your book will um, will make some headway in, in changing people's what people think about when they when they think of pop music. I got to say too, Shane, that it's also about ennobling the work of these pop music artists that often get disparaged as seemingly just a fly by night or bubblegum. that to create a pop music hit to make millions of people want to listen to your song is an act of fantastic craft. Now we may say in the end that we don't like it, that it's not to our taste, but we can't say that it's not consciously crafted and carefully constructed. You know, that, that's the thing that you observe in looking at anything on the top 10 at, at any given moment. You will see a conscious construction that is equal to the, the kind of construction that we see in the greatest singer-songwriters like Bob Dylan and in the greatest poets as well. Uh, it, it ends in a very different place, but the same kinds of habits of, of uh, art and of a kind of science in a way are there. I... Um, I just completely zone. Oh, oh yeah. This is, this is what, um, your thought made me think of <laughs> smooth. Um, I, it, something that made me, cause we were talking about this before I asked you, um, about postmodern jukebox, yeah. which you said was something that you, you were listening to, um, a fair amount during, uh, while writing this book, which is this, um, a group that does these fun, vintage covers of of um i mean they have like a lot of good songs like they'll they'll do mm-hmm. classics like welcome to the jungle or or like hey yeah or whatever that are actually like most people are like hey these are great songs but then they do kind of these cheesy kind of hated songs like stacy's mom or yeah. or or uh oops i did it again or or something like that and they and then they kind of redo it to make it this beautiful um uh vintage uh feel that it just it, it adds so much class to it mm-hmm. and through listening to that i've actually gained such more of an appreciation yeah. for a lot of the so i have such a strong aversion to like anything that that like the masses are into not not that i don't <laughs> like i like my game of thrones and uh some stuff like that but I, but but I've just my whole life. If it's like if everyone likes football, I'll decide I'm going to rebel against that. I, you know, if everyone likes this one particular group, I'm going to rebel against that. And any of the, and so, so I think that hearing something like say Taylor Swift mm. um, on the radio is immediately just going to be like, uh, in my head, if I'm just being honest, I'm like, what. What a bunch of idiots we, uh, are, you know, are populating this world. That this is the stuff that's popular. Blah blah blah. <laughs> and then I can listen to I can listen to uh, a, a cover on postmodern jukebox and be like, you know what? 
Yeah, good for her shaking that off. Like, like <laughs> you know what? Haters are gonna hate. <laughs> like, like, but I, I found all these mm. new appreciations for stuff that I had really written yeah. off. Yeah, and um, and and also, it's also made me realize just what a judgmental prick that I <laughs> that I can uh, I can be sometimes. Yeah. Um, and and so uh, that, that's what I that's what I really enjoy from. Um, first off, you gave me this book two days ago because yeah. it's not even out yet, so mm-hmm. I really haven't had a time to get through it. But I've I've read um, some of your previous work, and this is mm-hmm. what I love about what you do is um, kind of breaking things down in a way that and that's why I asked you about Kendrick Lamar because it's like if I have you break it down for me, then I can listen and be like, oh, okay, I, mm. I get it now. You know what I mean? And that's, I think, what – Postmodern jukebox and other kinds of uh, artists who perform these resurrections, these ways of taking pop music and ennobling it, are doing in a way they're reinterpreting. They're giving you a new lens into the music. So when Ryan Adams covers an entire fucking Taylor Swift album with his <laughs> bona fides as this singer songwriter and, and someone who's had struggles and gone through all the things that we think Taylor hasn't. What he does is strips away the layers of production, the Max Martin level, you know, whatever Swede is working on her music at a given moment, stripping away all of that highly wrought and polished production to get to the essence and quality of the songs underneath. And often what you see is that the songs are of, of great interest, melodically and otherwise, even you know, sometimes even lyrically, when stripped back to the basics. And, and that's what Postmodern Jukebox does as well. They take these songs, recontextualize them generically, stylistically, historically, changing the voice, the gender, all these dynamics to let us hear the song in its purest state, I guess, in a way, without some of the layers of production that now are common to uh, Billboard Hot 100 hit. I mean, it is interesting how um, once you find a way to connect, it opens up a door to um, all to like kind of this new world of possibilities and appreciation. So, some examples for me um, are so if if you say like when I heard you say thrash metal, yeah. I was like, is that still a thing that exists? <laughs> and and uh, something that doesn't appeal to me in in any way, or or even in heavy metal, I'd be like. Well, maybe when I was an angry teenager or something like that, like pretending to be tough, maybe. But um, I can still listen to um, like Trent Reznor mm-hmm. or uh, System of a Down yeah. and and be way into it, even though like in my mind, I've written off like a whole genre, you know, and same with like uh, like bluegrass um, or uh i i like i've been listening to the first two albums of the done by the yvette brothers i don't like mm. any of their newer stuff but um and it was like very raw and i was like okay i i get bluegrass is just like a thing where if i'm at a restaurant and it's playing i some i enjoy it but i never picture myself listening to in a, yeah. like a car by myself um and and um it, well just because i'm into psychedelics people people um you know, mentioned Sturgill Simpson, Sturgill mm-hmm. Simpson, Sturgill Simpson, yeah, for uh, for country music, mm-hmm. and um, listen, oh, okay, someone that like doesn't like country music, yeah. and um, 
Well, let's stop on that for a second. Yeah. Who who is allowed to like country music? Because at least when I was coming up, you know, through high school and college, the question would always emerge: Oh, so what music do you listen to? And people would usually give the most anodyne answer. It'd be something like, Oh, I listen to a little of everything except country or except rap. Yeah. Yeah. And why is it that those are the two most popular genres now that we, we we're living in a moment now where country for the longest time has dominated the pop charts and, and certainly in sales and, and rap were emerging out of this moment where and we're, we're now 40 plus years into his history and, it too is is suffused through all these different genres. So you know, I mean, you'll you know, hear you'll you'll hear a rap at like uh, um, uh, at a bunch of white people's wedding, you know, yeah. like, like uh, at their wedding reception, you know, dancing. You, you know to, that better than I. Which, I'm sure you uh, I, I do know that better, <laughs> than, but I remember being at like my brother's wedding, and yeah. and you know, he's he's nine years younger than me, um, and it's uh, that, that's something that I I don't remember seeing much of, like. 10, 15 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so just how now, now that's becoming um, this, this very, uh, not just acceptable, but a norm. Yeah. Um, that, uh, this, some, I, I remember because I lived through all of the, how controversial rap was and <laughs> rap's ruining. I mean, I, I guess there's still probably a little bit of that, but, mm. um, but anyway, it's, uh, that, that, that's so interesting that you, I guess I'd never thought of that before because I am one of those guys that say, oh, I like everything except country. Yeah. And why is it that those things are now the things that are dominating um, what's going on? So so let's talk about how your how your book is broken down a little bit. You talk about um, um, part one, you talk about how to analyze song lyrics and poetry. Part two, um, um uh, pop music's poetic forms in yeah. part three uh, engages pop music uh, pop music's poetic functions oh and before we get into all of that just a just a slight aside um, I saw in the appendix you have a fun appendix full of all sorts of uh, all sorts of weird things like songs <laughs> with screaming in them and things like that <laughs> um, you had one with a there's like a whisper category yeah right yeah yeah and you know what I was surprised by? I didn't see um Oh, what's the what's the Pink Floyd song where where in the in the middle um it, it, it's with all, all the ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the woman I can't believe you just got me to do <laughs> you didn't get me to do that. I got myself too. I'm very proud of myself. Um but uh it has the if you hear this, you're dying. Um, and mm. it, that's like one of the famous ones. I know I fucked up there. Yeah, you can't, up. you can't get all of them. Paperback. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so when you talk about how to analyze song lyrics um, as poetry, um, uh, break that down a little bit because um, before I first had you on, this is, and mm. I think this is very common for most people. Um, I mean, I guess when I think about it, I know that songs are you know they rhyme and that's like mm-hmm. poetry but you think of them as kind of two different things yeah that's true i think i'd say that that songs of course i, I admit and i experience them as, as everyone does as living in the air in the ear I mean, that's that's how we experience the lyrics to pop songs very few of us first encounter them on the page you know on genius.com or 
whatever the case may be, few of us encounter it first there or, as, or even as sheet music as a, you know, several generations back. That's how popular music was uh, circulated before the phonograph, uh, before certainly radio and, and other modes of, of listening. People had to put on their own concerts in their, uh, you know, right there with their pianos. So in our moment, though, we, we are disconnected from the language of song lyric. We experience the words in performance. And so what my book was trying to do and what I, my whole career at this point is, is endeavoring to do is to say, well, wait a minute. We can pause over those lyrics, capture them fleetingly on the page, knowing that we can let them go back into the sound and have gained and gleaned a greater appreciation for their function in that sound. The one move I've made beyond my work on hip-hop that we've talked about before, and, and one really necessitated by covering so many genres, particularly genres that emphasize the quality of performance in the voice, is that this book attends as well to how words respond to the pressure of performance. That is how Aretha Franklin, for instance, can sing some silly lyrics that would seem to you know, be nearly absurd in any other context, certainly if you're looking on the page, but they become charged with emotion by virtue of her own quality of voice or how a, a rhythmic or melodic context can take Simple words, love, love me, do, you know, I love you, I'll always be true, so please love me, do. I mean, something like that, how that can be something that people will want to listen to, that simple kind of structure by virtue of how those words are charged by performance. So that's the mystery that I'm doing. And what I'm doing is really claiming a broader space for, rap's, for rap and, and pop music's poetry, one that accounts both for how that poetry lives in the song lyric and how that poetry also lives in the sound itself. Those are equally the domains of uh, the poetry of pop. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, I feel like I'm far more into the lyrics than I am the music often. Most, most of the time, um, I think a lot of people don't even know, know the words of songs and i mean not that i do but but i i think there are hardly even i mean most people have like the bass turned up or whatever yeah. and, and, you know they're way into the beat and the rhythm i always like when i get rental cars and everything i'm always fussing with it to like turn up the vocals <laughs> i always want to hear what the what the singer is saying and it seems mm -hmm. like a underappreciated uh, <laughs> uh it, it, it's funny because the singer gets all of the attention, <laughs> mm -hmm. but the words don't. That's yeah. I mean, that's a strange irony of it. And, and we've seen a move in contemporary music uh, that only reinforces that. And it has everything to do with how we are consuming, how we're taking in the music by ear. I mean, I have a pair of beats by Dre headphones and they are tuned to be bass heavy. I mean, that's so everything ends up sounding like a drum when you're yeah. listening through Beats by Dre headphones. 
that's why I have a lot of other different headphones to put on depending on what I'm listening to. And even the way the music is mixed. So sound engineers, all these people that don't get a lot of the public credit uh, have a lot to do with how we uh, understand the lyrics or when we don't. I mean, take someone like Phil Spector and his wall of sound, you know, the, that kind of, his production style was predicated on actually emptying out a little space in between where the voice could cut through. You know, creating, understanding that the highs and the lows would be covered by various kinds of instrumentation, the rhythm and the melodic instruments, and then the voice as, uh, as voice would, would inhabit this middle zone that allows people to listen more carefully. And I've only touched a little bit on in my research on how on the science of that, and I know that there's quite a bit just in the the nature of hearing that gets play, played in, and the nature of cognition as well. The the the, the function of the mind as it takes in music. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we take in lyrics in a different way. Our brain does than we take in other forms of speech. It it is processed in a different hemisphere, even at where where it's as I understand it at least. And I'm sure I'm overstating it in a way that a neuro you know neurological scientists would cringe, but but uh, point being from it is that uh, song lyrics in, inhabit the same space as certain forms of automatic speech, from what I understand, you know, conventional greetings and even curses and things like that, as opposed to the, the speech that we construct that you and I are speaking to each other now. And so we, we take it in, we, we understand lyrics in a fundamentally different way. And that's both a, a hindrance to certain kinds of comprehension, but also a rich territory for connecting to a different part of our, our ourselves, of, of our of our of our identities. I mean, I saw this with my grandmother, who was uh, slowly slipping away due to Alzheimer's, and the things that remained, even in her worst times, were things that she had memorized that had rhythm and rhyme, mm-hmm. poetry, sometimes song lyrics. Scraps of of this memory would come to her, and and to be part of that experience, to be able to see her uh, mind light up in that way, and, and you know. Through, through her eyes, a recognition of this, this lost part of herself through song. What a powerful thing. So those of us without the, the compromised capacity of that still enjoy some of the benefits of that connection that draws us back to those uh, more, more you know, ancestral parts of our, of our brain. Yeah, that's interesting. My girlfriend's a social worker. She often plays music from, uh, you know, whatever clients kind of childhood figures out that kind of age or time frame and, and, uh, we'll find some of that, um, for them. And it wasn't it, uh, wasn't it Oliver Sacks had some weird. Oh yeah. He has a whole book where, where he goes into a lot of these issues. It's pretty rich. What was the thing? It was like someone that just simply couldn't, function and thus they were listening to one particular (laughs) band and then like all of a sudden they could just like be normal yeah ah, anyway it doesn't matter it it, it's interesting to me that uh it it seems like the music definitely comes first Mm -hmm. um like before i can really hear what the words are i need to first have listened to the song maybe maybe a couple times um before i can really catch a lot of a lot of the words and then you get the words kind of after that and then um some of the meaning can kind of come after i'm going through a lot of this with aesop uh, mm-hmm. right now oh yeah but um but if you look at a song like um uh oh shoot i'm forgetting uh 
forgetting the guy like hallelujah by um uh, yeah, yeah yeah that's something that could be appreciated on so many levels but you don't need to know any of the meaning behind it you don't even mm-hmm. need to know what the the words are and you might think of it as like a, uh i mean i'm sure my um my mom, who maybe has never even heard this song, would hear this and be like, oh, this is some nice Christian music or, or whatever, <laughs> you know. And then other people can appreciate it on all these deeper levels. I actually was was curious what the song was all I've read some uh, some whole spiel about what the song was yeah. about. And I'm like, after after having read the lyrics, I was like, oh, is oh, yeah. that what that meant? Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. I'll, I'll save it for the listeners. You can do your own digging. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but to me, some of some of the best music, and I think that's that's why there's so much re-listenability. Rather than, um, I'm trying to create a stand-up act that people can see two, maybe three times, and still enjoy it. Mm. And that is a stretch. Mm. Usually, if you've already heard the jokes, that's it. But music is a totally different beast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can, I mean, I was, uh, I I got into. Um, of Montreal um, a while mm. back. Are you mm. familiar? Um, well, they have the song, uh, I think it's like, I forget how they pronounce it. All their titles are so bizarre. Ground, Groundlick Empire or something like that. Um, and I must have listened to it like 40 times in a single week one time. <laughs> and you could never do that with a joke or or even like a, say a lecture or something like that you know you could never just like those same yeah. couple paragraphs just over and over and over again um and and that's it's one of the interesting powers of yeah, music and thank god for it or we wouldn't have whole genres of music that rely on the mind's capacity to contain and even gain pleasure from repetition from the anticipation and satisfaction of, of certain patterns. And certainly hip hop is in that. And so many of the, the things that maybe go under the, the rubric of EDM fall under the, the same sort of thing where r- the rhythmic regularity actually allows for a lot of the pleasure that people take. And we, so we anticipate the things that are familiar and we also anticipate in an equal but opposite way, the departures from the established pattern. And that balance is the the secret sauce. I mean, mm-hmm. we take a song like uh, Pharrell's "Happy," which was a worldwide hit and became insufferable after a while. Mm-hmm. You know, one of those earwormy type of songs. I'm glad you said it, so I didn't. Have to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we love you, Pharrell, but but still, I mean, that song was was played yeah. out, and but the thing that allowed it to have most of us to have such a high threshold for hearing it so many times was a balance between its regularity and its its disruption of rhythmic expectation. And there's actually been a study done on this that talks about how it, it achieved this, this perfect balance of that uh, kind of moment of, of listener expectation and of, of a kind of surprise. And it, it does both of those rhythmically and it, and it makes us want to dance. It makes us want to get up. It makes us want to put it on repeat. And there's so many songs that find ways of doing that Usually it begins with sound, but it can also uh, manifest itself in in lyric as well. I mean, that's that's the idea of the hook. The hook used to be a very specific thing. It used to be pretty much synonymous with the chorus. 
So, you know, that you, you come around to, you know, purple haze all in my brain or whatever the case may be, you come, you, your mind anticipates the return of that chorus and that becomes a hook. Well, you talk to a lot of people, I mean, read John Seabrook's fascinating uh, book, The Hit Factory, that came out a couple of years ago, and you'll, you'll see an amazing discussion of this. But he talks about interviewing producers who say that now you have to have a hook every six seconds for it to work. Mm-hmm. So our friend Taylor Swift in that Shake It Off song, there are probably a dozen hooks in that song, a dozen repeated patterns or motifs from typical shake it off, shake it off thing to these other moments of, you know, the rhythmic introduction, other things that are repeated patterns that, that satisfies the mind's desire for that, you know, balance. And a lot of people don't even realize she's making it up as she goes. So, I I don't know why I felt a need. Poor Taylor, man. I so I'm very curious. I want I want to see this through your eyes a little bit more because I kind of so as someone I consider myself uh, very very um, uh, musically sort of inept i feel like Hmm. i have decent enough tastes and things but i i feel like i don't so if someone were to be like why why does music strike the ear i was like well i um i had um shoot past guest dan leventon Mm -hmm. Uh, i had him on you know i read some of his book i've talked with you and so i mean i could maybe say you know well music builds this expectation and breaks it and it keeps your brain active but when you go to analyze um a song to write a book like this what are you doing what what is your process Mm -hmm. are are you just listening to the music first for the from like a purely just appreciative point of view or are you like sitting down and like I'm about to perform science on this yeah. on this song. Well, that's a fantastic question. It's one I confront all the time, both in speaking to audiences in the public, you know, bookstores or the sorts of things, and in speaking to my students about what I'm asking them to do in the class. Because I, I had a student just this semester come up to me and say, Professor, I'm worried about this class because I don't want to hate this, these things I love so much, but and, and I feel like that often happens when I'm reading literature and, and things, but music is a sacred thing that we don't want to look at like that. You know, William Wordsworth has this uh, phrase where he says something along the lines of that we murder to dissect. And so there is that, that concern. And, and I had that concern as well. What I found though, is that my, fandom, for lack of a better word, the pleasure that I take from listening has only grown by virtue of disrupting my normal listening practices, of of demanding from myself a more conscious and conscientious attention to the craft of the music that I'm taking in. That It doesn't keep me from the pleasure of it. I can access that again. Songs are made of sturdy stuff, and, the, and our connection to songs are sturdier still. So you can do all sorts of crazy experiments with the ways that you listen, with the conditions under which you listen, and be conscious about it, and still find a way of connecting to the pleasure of it. We already do these kinds of experiments even without knowing it. You're doing a kind of experiment on your listening cognition when you, you know, put your headphones on, a shitty pe- you know, pair of uh, 
you know, iPod earbuds or whatever, you know, the, your, your iPhone earbuds, put those in at the gym and listen to your music that way. That's already an experiment because you have the ambient noise of people clanking weights or running on treadmills and you're hearing the music in something other than its ideal state already. Or, you know, under various conditions of inebriation or, oh, that's, or that's such you know, an interesting I mean, way there. to, I never thought about it like that because that's how I view my writing process. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm like actively like, okay, I'll think about some jokes in the shower mm-hmm. um, sometime, or while driving. Sometimes I'm sitting down and writing. Sometimes I'm like, I'm like, well, I, I haven't smoked weed and, and looked at this material before. I guess I'll, <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try that out. Um, yeah. I yeah. guess I'd never thought about it. You know, and, of, and some of the best analysis that I did actually was away from the music. Something that happened maybe w- midway through the point of writing this book. I'd wake up, you know, 5 a.m. or something with a song playing in my head. I'd, I'd reconstitute the song in, in as great a depth as my mind allowed there. And I would analyze it. And sometimes I would hear certain things or notice certain things that when I went back to the song, I'd say, wow, I, I wouldn't have noticed that if I hadn't been listening through my memory, through my, my own uh, kind of recasting of the song in a concert for my, my brain alone. And yeah. and so I use all of these modes of accessing the music in fresh ways and ex, it kind, of, kind of exposing it to different kinds of conditions and experimentations. And, and it, it still allows me to go back and listen in the press, pristine conditions of the room we're in now, you know, filled with acoustical foam and a nice stereo system and listening in something close to how the artist probably intended to be heard. I can, I can do that and you know, reap tremendous pleasure from that experience, knowing as well that I can, I can isolate a certain segment of the song. I can look at the way that the end rhymes work. I can do all these various things and still uh, keep the, the song from harm. And in fact, increase the pleasure and enjoyment that I bring to it while also enriching my, my intellectual engagement and, and my appreciation for the craft of these artists who make the music that, you know, fills our lives. Um, do you, do you spend much time looking up kind of the stories behind the mm. songs? Um, it, yeah. You know, that's, that's it, a good question. Well, yeah. well, I had, so I had this really odd and funny moment um it was uh um uh uh rick rick taylor the uh always thought that i what's the song that i always thought i'd see you again Mm. or whatever um whatever the name of it so anyhow we were listening to um there (laughs) there's a bunch of us uh, like four or five of us guys uh hanging out in the cabin um uh, having some mushrooms actually and uh and we were listening to music and this one friend was like do you know the story behind this song he what happened was his uh his um he was on tour and his his uh uh his friends were going to surprise him and fly his girlfriend in to see him and then his, the plane that his girlfriend was on went down and hmm. and crashed and and then they, but they didn't want to tell him until like uh, this this weekend of the tour had wrapped up, so he could concentrate on the things. And then, and we listened back 
to the song then after that and it was just like <laughs> um the plans they made put an end to you and all of Man, all of this yeah, stuff yeah. and like we're all like crying and everything and then and then my friend wrote me a few <laughs> days later and told me that that's a myth that was like a made up <laughs> and then and the actual uh, like uh, by comparison the actual story of it like makes him seem like a dick by comparison mm. like once you've built it up but, but but just the uh how how much the actual meaning of where that song came from like i remember um thinking like nirvana's smells like teen spirit was you know it was this huge enormous i mean i think that was the first real song that really struck a chord with me mm-hmm. um and uh, and then to find out that um someone had just said to Kurt Cobain once, like, because he was wearing some new deodorant or whatever, like, "Hey, Kurt smells like Teen Spirit" or something, <laughs> and he he misinterpreted what they mm-hmm. meant, like that, like he interpreted like he seemed like inspiration or something. Well, well, thank really God, though, I mean, that that's the story of some behind so much great art, even yeah. outside of music, where the the germs of ideas and you know the prosaic workaday reality that we all inhabit in the minds of great artists becomes something profound and provocative and compelling, mm. you know, a mulatto, an albino, a mosquito, <laughs> my libido. I mean, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> it's provocative, you know, yeah. but, but I mean that, that, that sort of uh, move even there is, is uh, has a kind of associative logic, you know, thinking about the blood, thinking about color, thinking about things. And it doesn't follow necessarily a, uh, any kind of deductive reasoning or in, inductive reasoning for that matter, but it, it has a kind of impressionistic sense to it. Mm-hmm. And you know, thank God uh, artists have the capacity to take just the everyday shit that we all slog through and ennoble it, make it cool, make it fun to listen to. And, and that's what artists do. And and so the the point from that is that, man, I mean, the, the there's so much that art helps us access so much that music helps us access about our everyday lives. And, and we don't necessarily need the stories that the artists actually went through to, to access it. That's, that's why it's, it's art and not biography. You know, James Taylor said something along these lines when asked about, you know, your song seems so personal, seem to unearth all this personal history of your addictions and your relationships and all this and that how much do you draw on your own experience in writing your songs? And he said, well, maybe at first quite a bit, but when I have to put that material through the the demands of the craft of songwriting, when I have to make it rhyme or when I have to set it into the space of this musical bar, when I have to think about image and voice and all these things, by the time I'm done doing all of that, it doesn't look much like me at all. Mm-hmm. So that's that's to me the, the the wonderful nature of even these most intimate things. It's really something it's drawing out of you as much or more of as what it's revealing about the artist herself or himself. And that's 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 something that I always take with me is that it's sometimes fun to hear those stories, but know that that's only one point of entry into the song, and it's not necessarily a privileged point of entry. It's not necessarily any better than 
the, the point of entry that you might take on an emotional level in your response to the music that you're hearing. That has a legitimacy and value, too. That's interesting. It makes me think of, uh, um, again, I'm dwelling on it just because this is what I've been obsessive obsessing over lately but aesop's new album and he has the <laughs> he has the song rings and there's a line uh um they will cut you down just to count your rings mm-hmm. and i don't know exactly what he meant by it in the the song the song is about um art and him like kind of having mixed feelings about giving up his career as a painter and um mm-hmm. but i'm not sure exactly what he had in his head when he wrote that lyric but it's very powerful and i think can be interpreted in a lot of different ways and can apply to different people's lives and situations in many uh different ways and well having spent time in boston like we we did forget the obvious tree reference this is clearly about tom brady (laughs) cutting his ass down to count all his five rings (laughs) (laughs) um so uh kind of um uh complementary but almost opposite point um of that is and we talked about this on the phone um uh probably back in january or something Hmm. um something that fascinates me is the ability to convey uncomfortable messages Hmm. through music um so the example that i think i used over the phone was so if i were um if i if i were to do stand up um if i were to go out there tonight and uh and just like kind of out of nowhere in the middle of the show or open with this and and say uh um hey hey guys do you ever you ever wish you'd never been born <laughs> um like that might Maybe maybe I get a couple laughs, laughs depending yeah. on the context. Yeah. Maybe, but maybe. but it also might be like way too dark mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Um, now now skip to uh, Queen mm. singing. I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. And that now that's a song that you know you'll be in a bar with hardly anyone paying attention, and that happens to tr- and. The whole bar might launch into that, mm. into the and sing sing along to that yeah. line, uh, you know, with, with very hardly even engaged in anything. Like it's this powerful line that everyone and and it doesn't like it doesn't creep people out in the same way. I mean, maybe it makes them think a little bit, um, and we all, uh, I suppose, have those thoughts. But but it's just so interesting the way in which. Uh, music can get into some of those uh dark spaces um uh easier than than just having you know i i i could uh i could sit down i can't i can't find the best example in my mind from uh from music but but if i were to you know depending on the person if i were if i were to sit and be like uh, hey, you know, like we're at lunch, and I'm like, yeah, I have some suicidal thoughts from time to time. <laughs> You'd be like, well, you should probably go to a therapist then. <laughs> but, but an artist, a musician, yeah. can convey this idea in a way that's like, oh yeah, you know, this is like part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you listen to Tupac's albums as I've been doing a lot lately, and he's circling around these themes of suicide all the time. But you don't 
necessarily take him seriously with it. Like you said, it becomes more of a, a statement about the human condition, about the the sense of isolation that all of us at any given time may experience, about the need for human connection, all those sorts of uh, abstract ideas and ideals. And And I think part of it is, one, that the words and the full meaning of them don't always land on the consciousness for reasons that we talked about before. But also another reason that resonates with me as a literary scholar is that you know, when when words are, are taken in through the ear rather than through the page, we in our, our minds as hearers have much more control over them. We can disconnect phonemes and from individual words and connect them to another word so that you think you're hearing something completely different from what the person actually is saying. Mm-hmm. In the extreme case of you know, what they call mondegreens, you know, misheard uh, lyrics, and, and you should tell people why they call him that because yeah. I, I didn't know this. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, a humor writer, a woman who was writing in the mid '50s, wrote an article on uh, that she called Lady Mondegreen, and she tells the story of her mother singing these Irish folk ballads or reading the the Irish folk poetry to her of the oral tradition, and there's a a, a line that ends. Uh, you know, killed the the Duke of Norwich or whatever, and laid him on the green. And she heard it in her mom's voice as, and Lady Mondegreen, so killed the Duke of Norwich and Lady Mondegreen, which makes perfect sense yeah. for a child or for anybody for that matter, the, you know, the Duke and the Lady. And so this became a way, uh, a shorthand for talking about the mind's capacity to hear words uh, in different arrangements and to to... Uh, reinterpret lyrics in in all sorts of ways. I mean, the famous example from Hendrix is, you know, excuse me when I kiss the sky and it becomes this guy. Yeah. Uh, And to the point where Hendrix himself in performance would sometimes F with people and just say, kiss this guy, actually say the kissing this guy just to, to reinforce the the confusion. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, these are moments of surprising, uh, levity, maybe not full-on laugh-out-loud moments, but moments that some people will will uh, hold till their dying breath on to their interpretation of a particular lyric that might be completely different than what the standard uh, you know transcription of it would read, and that's that's part of our ownership as well, and that's all right. I think most artists are cool with it. I I do I also like that idea that that example you used at the very end. I, I like when artists mess with people's head a little bit because we mentioned uh, Nirvana. I mean that was that was one of Kurt's like big things. Is he mm-hmm. he was he was concerned about people taking his stuff a little too seriously? At least is my understanding of, of, of from what interviews and everything that. Yeah. It, uh, and and so he would have like here's a meaningful line, and then here's a nonsense line. And you figure out which one is which. <laughs> and he's probably laughing to this day at all the, the scholars like me, or actually not like me, but scholars who who look at his lyrics and are parsing every little word yeah. and looking for these profound connections, you know, you know, giving it the genius.com treatment, which is cool, you know, to, to unpack like that and to build up the mythology. But don't forget the other kinds of work that's being done, the mm-hmm. poetics, the play all of this with language and sound is equally, if not of greater uh, 
importance to the artists who who write the lyrics and should be i think of equal or greater importance to us who who want to take in this music in the way that you know the artist might imagine um all right well i have a i've just a couple more questions cuz we we are getting near the end of the hour i'm i'm already thinking um because i'm coming back to through boulder in a little bit maybe i'll try to uh get through your book read and, the book and, and, and get you back <laughs> oh, you gave it to me I too know, i didn't I know busting, it was <laughs> i didn't have access i to actually it. haven't it's, read it's the actually, book actually it's actually not yeah. out well you don't need no to but that, no, i think there's something to that though i mean because you you like just as with music sometimes the artist who composes a song there'll be a super fan who will know more about the the lyrics than the artist him or herself i've seen it i've seen it happen you know my friend common the the rapper and actor i mean he has so many lyrics floating through his mind and i'm sure there are people who actually would be able to correct him on his his stuff i mean he told me before a show one time he said well you know i, I would do this song but i forget all the words and you know there'd be so when when you see your your favorite artist pointing the microphone out to the crowd it might not be for just for crowd involvement it might be because they forgot what the hell they said <laughs> Um, I wonder if he has a similar feeling when he watches uh, Hell on Wheels and he comes back after some bear attack and it's exceptionally <laughs> confusing. Um, I uh, <laughs> that's a deep cut. Um, I so uh, so one. I do think that uh, it would be fun to have you back on once I've actually read or at least a good section of the book. Um, and and um, so I but I have I have a couple of of fun questions that uh that i I think i'm i kind of asked you a little bit about this um because uh now that we're bffs and we talk every day (laughs) um i uh (laughs) um curious your your least favorite and favorite parts of of right because you've written all these books on Mm hip-hop which i imagine were for the most part um mostly a joy the whole way through <laughs> whereas this book is so expansive yeah. and covering so many genres that there had to be real like nightmare <laughs> sections of it that that <laughs> where you where you had to force yourself to appreciate things that you had very little interest in appreciating yeah i mean we already talked before i was one of those guys who would say when asked what their favorite music is i say everything but country so I had to get over that inborn bias that I had built up that I didn't like country music. That was actually, you know, our dislikes are at least as strong as our likes in defining taste and and express expressing our taste to others. And for me, that was a bedrock principle of who I was. I was a guy who doesn't like country music. (laughs) So then I started listening to it for real without, uh, kind of the bringing as many, as few of my preconceptions as possible. And I found that I love certain artists, you know, whether it's more contemporary artists like Casey Musgraves or going back to, I don't know, Loretta Lynn, Willie Nelson, some of the outlaw country uh, of that period. I mean, there's some fantastic stuff and country has an access point to real life experiences, particularly the real life experiences of grown folk that a lot of other genres neglect. It's grown folks music. It you know deals with heartbreak and love and and divorce and children and all these sorts of themes that you rarely see in hip hop. Uh my my what I would have said was my favorite genre going in. So 
it's been a way for me to reconnect to this, I think a better balance of music as a, as a way to help explain uh, periods of your life. And for me in this very heavy period of my life, as, as you point out, I'm doing so much and, and professionally and personally to, to have the access point to some country every now and now and then yeah, and it yeah. sees me through. Uh, what, what about, um, what, what about the things that were like, Oh good. I get to work on, <laughs> on this. <laughs> what were the, what were the easy ones for you? Man, I mean, you would have thought, I, at least I thought that hip hop would be easy, but I found it much more challenging in the context of these other genres to do the kind of work that I'd done before on hip hop. That was very much lyric driven because hip hop traditionally as, as a genre is rhythmically driven. You know, so the voice is a kind of drum as well. The flow of an MC is a rhythmic relationship to the beat. And here I'm dealing so much in melodies and harmonies that you know, it made me reinterpret the way that I understood hip hop and to, to appreciate the nature of the voice there. So what I thought would be the easy part, writing about the stuff I've been writing about, was actually harder because I had to reopen my own critical toolbox for mm-hmm. dealing with hip hop and expand it to think about how say someone like chance the rapper or Kendrick Lamar for that matter, uh, uses, um, their, use their voices to, uh, really be not just rhythmically engaged, but also melodically engaged with the musical context against which they're recording. So that was, that was surprisingly more work than I anticipated mm. to do that rethinking. You know, I actually am I'm just remembering this now. Um, this might be a special treat for the listeners. I went through uh, I went through your anthology of rap um, when I was getting ready for our first interview, and I made um, a Spotify of because there was what were the different parts of it? It was like uh, yeah. the Golden Age and uh, bunch of shit. They, they, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, new well, Millennium whatever. Rap. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I put every song that I that you used. I put into Spotify playlists and Man. I separated them by, and then I was listening to that um, in preparation cool, for our last, uh, our last interview. And uh, I want to do something like that um, with this book, but I think it might be a little more challenging. <laughs> well, but, I, I've done some of it for you. I'm going to really? be posting Spotify playlists of the appendix that you mentioned. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so I'm glad I brought it up. Yeah. That'll give Send a, that to a, me. a point of entry for, for people. Cause then I can put it on the, I'll put it on the, website as well so when people go to your episode they can find that which on the last episode i believe all the spotify ones are on there um yeah that'd be cool okay well let's do this again um uh hopefully unless our schedules don't match up or something but but anyway just in case um this uh it, it doesn't work out to get you on again for another few months or something like that, which I don't think will be the case. Um, I, I want to thank you, Adam, as always, for for uh, joining me and and uh, being uh, one of my new favorite people in academia. And uh, and uh, sorry to quantify it like that, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, you're you're an awesome guy to talk to, and thanks for uh, spreading your knowledge. And love of music. Thank you, man. This is always fun. All right. Terrific. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. All right. So once again, uh, everybody, if you love this podcast, spread the love throughout the world. I have my guests each week uh, plug a charity of their choice. Adam, uh, what what uh, what do you want to throw a plug towards this week? This time is the 
Alzheimer's Foundation of America. I mean, we talked about how music has this cap- capacity to unlock certain parts of the, the the personalities, the history of folks who are suffering from this disease. And, and this organization does great work in that regard of thinking how we can both cure the disease, but also attend to people who are suffering with it and the families who are affected by it. That's amazing. Um, so you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website to find out more about that. And we just did an episode, a live episode on Alzheimer's re- recently. Mm-hmm. So if you're, uh, if you want to just know more in general about Alzheimer's, which is an incredible, the aging brain, something that happens to all of us. <laughs> um, so pretty important stuff. So uh, you, you guys can check that out and every little bit helps. So thank you. Guys, I wanted to mention one more time that after the Nina Rubin episode where I, I shared, I, I had, uh, I've been doing better. I, I did have one more um, mild um, panic attack since then. So I've now had two panic attacks in my life. Um, and I am um, constantly anxious, which is new for me, but I'm adjusting to it. I'm also being um, incredibly productive. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm getting a lot of stuff done. I'm getting a lot of things managed and you'll get to hear more in, in uh, part two with the Nina Rubin episode, um, coming maybe next week or the week after, um, I'm figuring that out. There might be another kind of book release, uh, episode that needs to come out next week. But, um, anyhow, um, so I, I've gotten help from, I've, I've already had uh, listeners write me who are going through old episodes and taking some notes for me, and that, it's uh, incredible. It's saving me so much time. I have, um, I have uh, a couple artists that are potentially getting involved in the documentary, and the Patreon um, account um, is, I already have a... a a few of you already pledged a little bit of so Patreon um, dot com, which is on the Here We Are podcast and everything. You can go on and you can pledge X amount of money, a um, hundred dollars a month. Jk, just I'm just using an anchoring effect there. I mean, you can pledge a hundred dollars a month, but you can pledge two, three dollars a month as as well. Um, but. Uh, uh, it's whatever you want. I've already had a few coming in. Um, I think I'm, I'm getting something like $30 a month, um, or something like that so far. And, uh, so every little bit, uh, helps. So here's where this Patreon money is going. This is not, uh, the, here we are podcast. I still, um, I, I still invest my own money into that and, and pay for the help and everything else. Um, but any, anything that comes on through the Patreon account, this is where it's going towards is my other projects like this, my documentary, my psychedelic documentary, which starts, um, record, we start recording in about a week. I have, I'm, I have, uh, lined up to do some, um, some treatments and be a bit of a guinea pig, which is exciting. And then, um, the psychedelic science conference, um, coming up and we already filmed, my DMT talk, uh, in 4k, um, by the way. And, uh, so we're going to, uh, my DMT talk is, is in the, uh, very beginning stages. And so it's not nothing that would be really for a special or anything. And I've only done it like a handful of times, uh, until I've had more time, um, to do it. 
but we recorded that so we can use bits of it for the documentary and possibly some other purposes. And so I, so I had to pay for that. So that's a charge to have someone and come in and film it. And then I had to buy a hard drive, um, to put all of this content on to then ship that content, um, to my, uh, uh, to my director. And so, so that's where some of this initial money is, is going. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if I, if I get a little more, I'll be able to invest in, um, like I want to get a, uh, 4k GoPro camera, which will help me, um, record a few supplemental things. So, so when I don't have, um, a film crew for specific shoots, I'll be able to have a little 4K Go GoPro, which it's not that much money. It's just money that I don't really have um, to invest because of all of the other projects um, going on. Um, but um, so so one of the things I'm thinking is if I can get this camera, maybe I'll start even being able to record um, the Here We Are podcast and and potentially um, show some. So if I'm in a lab or a great example is, um, in the, uh, remember when I tried to get stung by the, by, by the most painful insect, um, on earth and, uh, and I couldn't do it. So in those circumstances, um, I'll, I'll just have a little 4k, um, GoPro with me. So it's shooting in, um, in 4k, the highest, if you're unfamiliar, it, um, the, the highest definition, um, really available right now. And so I'll be able to shoot little things like that and maybe put together some, um, some small clips and, and edit some stuff together now that I'm taking on more help. And so that is where things like, um, your Patreon investment are, uh, are going to. And so, and also the reason why another reason why I took a break from doing intros and outros last week was because I wanted to give you guys a break from my from my long spiels and I was also just kind of going through some things mentally and uh, and psychologically um, that I just I just wanted to have a better grasp on things um, and I do now and things are going really really well and all all of your emails and all of your support and all of your um, Patreon donations have really um gone a long way to make me feel a little more secure make me feel like i have things under control and then um it never hurts to have a little validation um from you guys and reinvigorate um it makes me feel like i i'm on the right track and doing things that people care about which is good because i care about um what i'm doing and i try to only I'm trying my hardest to only do things that I really care about and think are actually meaningful and significant and do them in a fun way, of course. So, um, again, you guys are awesome. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are my absolute favorite. Hello. 
I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 